Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Hello and welcome to Lost in Science for another week. This is half an hour of the greatest, the best science stories from across the globe on your radio today. My name is Claire. Thank you for being with us. And this week on the show, I have my co-presenters, Chris Stu. Hello. Hello. Now, Stu, what do you have for us this week on Lost in Science? Well, you know, we love a good medical science story on Lost in Science. So I'm going to look into a story which I've seen reported. It's been all over the place um, on the ABC and in the in the sort of news services. But I think they're kind of all reporting it wrong. So I just wanted to make, oh. make clear what has actually happened here. It's, it's, it's being touted as a, uh, you know, human cloning story or a human embryo story. It's not quite what's actually going on. So I'm going to sort of tease it out and see what the story really is. It's a really good story. It's it's really, you know, interesting science that they're doing. It is a big breakthrough, but it seems to be the headlines are not catching right. what's going on in the actual story, I think. Right. So you are breaking the real science behind the headlines today on Lost in Science. Yes, absolutely. Great. You have to stay tuned for that. Um, and Chris... What do you have for us this week? I have exactly the same story as Stu. It is a story <laughs> of Stu breaking the headlines of the real science. Um, a couple of years ago, Stu did a story on a interstellar object that passed through our solar system and how some people were claiming it was an alien artefact. Well, Stu was right. Let's be honest. That's that's the thing when he said that it that it you know it wasn't that had some natural explanation. Well, at least that's what the most of the um the scientific community believes. I'm going to be looking into that a bit more because there has stuff that has happened in the period since. There's been a lot more research, a lot more claims floating out there, and a lot of publicity in recent weeks around this particular mysterious object called Oumuamua, which you may have heard of. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I'll dig into that. And again, the whole point is just to say how Stu was right. <laughs> I'm not always right, and I like to think if I'm wrong, I'll admit that I'm wrong. But in that case, I was right. (laughs) (laughs) It is a big week for Stu's scepticism on Lost in Science this week. So on with the show. Scientists in a number of fields are fascinated with cloning and as a result, a lot of science gets published around the field of cloning. So we often find ourselves talking about it on Lost in Science and I'm not sure if either of you remember when we covered the Japanese cloning breakthrough. We did cover this story, it was way back in 2014 when a top Japanese research scientist claimed to be able to clone any old kind of cell from blood cells. Do you remember this? Mm, Vaguely. Vaguely, yeah. What's Um, happened since 2014? 
Well, yeah, it was massive news at the time. In the end, turned out to be basically made up. Uh, the paper uh-huh. was full of plagiarised content and the results weren't even true. So there was a big story about that which ended up not being the story of the breakthrough. It was just the story of why is this person you know, making this stuff up? And I think it's partly due to the pressure to find something in this field because of how useful it would be to be able to take an easily obtained cell like blood or skin or something like that and turn it into something else that you could then research on those cells that you've obtained. There's a lot of ethical concerns and approvals that would be avoided if you could take some cells that someone donated, say their skin cells, and just use that for your research instead of having to go and try and find specific types of tissue very limited in supply, often very difficult to get approval due to, you know, completely understandable ethical concerns about experimentation on humans. We don't really want to go down that path. So you've got cell lines from deceased patients and cell lines from various stages of human embryos that you're allowed to use under strict conditions. And all of those limitations kind of slow the research down. So This is why that false breakthrough from Japan was so exciting, I think, for scientists in that field. But probably why also all those scientists looked at it so closely, they found the holes in the story and went, hey, wait, there's something not right about this. And they sort of picked the paper to shreds. And also, unfortunately, the scientist who published it was picked to shreds by the media as well, which is a bit of a shame. But this is the high-pressure field of, of cloning research, I guess. Now, as I said, the pressure is really high to get some sort of ability to to do cloning on cells that have already turned into something. So all our cells start off as stem cells. They turn into different organs. We've got skin cells and blood cells and all these other types of cells. Once they're in that form, they don't change very easily. So the whole point of a lot of this research is to get adult cells to change into something else. So there's been a report from a research team at Monash University, which has been widely reported in various news outlets in what I think is a pretty misleading way, which could potentially upset people if all they do is read the headlines. And this is what I'm saying is try and read the whole article. If you ever see, you know, it's, it's very easy these days. You see a headline on social media, you read the headline, you react to what it says, and maybe you're not actually getting the whole story. So it does pay to read the articles. But even further than that, if you really want to get to the bottom of it, follow the links back through and find out what the actual research is and what it's for and what was actually found. So this Monash uh, research team are working in the field of reproductive human medicine, and they're looking for ways to model early human embryo development without using actual embryos. So that's a really tricky thing to do because if you want to do experiments on embryos, you're going to run into an ethical minefield or potentially a red tape brick wall or some other mixed metaphor that I haven't quite figured out yet. Also, Uh, there's a lack of of embryos available for the research as well. Well, that's, that's absolutely a problem too. So as we know, a human embryo begins with a single cell, which is the ovum, fertilized by another cell, a sperm, to produce a fertilized egg, 
which then commences cell division. Now, after about five days of cell division, this becomes a, a little sort of cluster of cells called a blastocyst. And that's when the mass of dividing cells starts to get organised eventually into it's kind organs. Of a, yeah, it's kind of a, a hollow ball and part of it forms the embryo and part of it forms the placenta, is my understanding. Yeah, that's exactly right. Five days it turns into this blastocyst. At this point in a pregnancy, a blastocyst implants into the wall of the uterus and the embryo begins to develop further. Or, possibly, it seems like just as often, it doesn't do that. Mm. So the blastocyst is often the point at which a pregnancy will not take and you don't end up with a pregnancy. So in order to study what makes a blastocyst implant or not, it would be very handy to have a whole lot of blastocysts and study them directly. But obviously this is a problem. It's not an easy thing to collect in the first place and whatever supply of them there may be, uh, you know, again, are very limited. So this team at Monash led by Professor Jose Polo looked for another way and they've developed a method of producing model blastocysts using skin cells from adult human donors, which is a pretty massive thing to do. A whole lot of the headlines have said they've produced human embryos from skin cells, but these are not human embryos, despite the fact that the cells in them are human cells. These are not human embryos. These are effectively a model of a blastocyst. So they get the skin cells to form into blastocyst shapes. They treat the skin cells to deprogram them, to sort of rewind them from being skin cells. Uh, And then they... That's using particular tissue culture media. And then they move them through a series of different tissue culture media to get them to form into clusters of cells which look a lot like what a blastocyst looks like, but it's not actually a blastocyst. So um, what they've, they've actually called these model blastocysts iBlastoids, which sounds very early 2000s to me. <laughs> Um, I don't know how long they've been working on this project, but it's kind of a bit out of date, possibly. Um, I don't think they receive the internet anyway, so it's it's a question of what the eye actually stands for there. But uh, as they've said, the eye blastoids are not viable embryos. They don't continue to develop beyond mm. a few days after they've formed, and it's unclear from the work that they've published whether they even could form embryos or whether they could be implanted or anything like that so this is i guess this is the thing where it does become to me like a questionable thing is understanding what is the difference between these and an actual embryo and whether they could be implanted because even a human embryo um an actual human embryo is not going to develop beyond five or six days in the laboratory because it needs to be implanted to develop further and to become an actual fetus eventually down the track Whereas these ones, I mean, we're told they, oh, they they can never become an embryo because we won't implant them. But 
is if you did, what mm, would happen? What and would happen? W- yeah, why is this not the same as human cloning? I guess that's the um, that's a big question that that has to be answered, and I I assume that the ethics department at their university will be looking at that pretty closely. As you say, they're, they're, uh, if, they're, if they're indistinguishable from genuine blastocysts that form from a fertilisation event, then, yeah, at what point do you say, well, they just kind of look like that and they're not really the same as a blastocyst? But they're saying at the moment, well, they're not really the same. And I guess the question is if anyone else... You know, I mean, this this opens up a huge field of research into blastocysts themselves because they've actually got an, an effectively endless supply of them um, to work with what they're actually working on is why you know if there's some sort of physical characteristic that makes some of them fail and some of them implant that means potentially they will have to be trying to implant them at some point mm. so you know it's it's it is going to raise a lot of ethical questions and yeah. Yeah, and I think um, I think that that's probably is the time there to have those discussions and what what are the ethical implications and what controls need to put in, put in place for this kind of research to to prevent those ethical dilemmas and the, and the problems arising. And you know, this is this is always going to be an ethical dilemma, I guess, in reproductive research and in in general in any kind of cloning related to human beings. Um, at what point do we say that's all very interesting now let's just shut that down or you know do we do we mm. put controls in place that allow you know allow this kind of thing to happen i think part of the problem though with all of this research is that the research moves often a lot quicker than the legislation and the policy comes with it in research institutions it is pretty amazing research i just it did it did kind of bother me a little bit that they'd been reporting it in uh in the news that i'd read kind of a, it's a huge step that they've made but what comes after that is going to be very interesting i think Okay, so back in 2017, feels like a lifetime ago, uh, an object from interstellar space passed through our solar system. Uh, this object, they call it Oumuamua. I think that's the correct pronunciation. It is Hawaiian. It has a bottle stop at the beginning, but I'm not sure exactly how to do that. And Oumuamua was the first interstellar object ever observed, and it was rather odd. What was so odd about it? Well, it was it was kind of a weird shape. So it was a couple of only a couple of hundred meters long, but it, it was not kind of a little round blob. It was either like very long and thin, or very flat and thin, some sort of weird shape. And can I just ask, when you say yeah. it was the first interstellar object ever yeah. observed, what do you mean by that? Well, okay, so we could tell from its trajectory through the solar system where it came from. Uh, and this one in particular was moving too fast to have been in a stable orbit around the sun. So it had come from outside the solar system and was on its way back out um, after passing by the sun. So yeah, so this is the thing. So it was um, it was moving pretty fast because it had come outside um, the solar system and it was accelerated by the sun's gravity. But then it actually accelerated even further as it was leaving. It had its own acceleration. 
And now, this so that sounds weird, but it can it happen. It does sound weird. So, comets sometimes do this. So, comets, I don't know if you know what they are, they're kind of like big, dirty snowballs, they describe them as. And so, the sun's heat causes them to give off gas and dust. Uh, basically, it evaporates whatever they're made out of. And that outgassing, it produces... Well, it produces a kind of little, like, coma, they call it, like an atmosphere around the comet, often a tail. But essentially, the gas coming out acts like a rocket and propels the comet away from the sun. So the trouble is that they looked at Oumuamua, even though it was a long way away, it didn't have a visible tail or any kind of coma around it that would match what you'd expect from a comet outgassing. So hence why it's a mystery. Yep. Sorry, this is, this is why some people thought it was a spaceship with some kind of propulsion system. Possibly, because it was so weird. I mean, it's a, well, you know, okay, if this is the first one, then how do we know what they're supposed to look like? Now, mm-hmm. actually, since Oumuamua, there has been another interstellar object observed. Um, this one was called 2i Borisov. It arrived in 2019, and it clearly looked like a comet. Okay. So that one I saw, and then, okay, that's, that's what we expect. That's what we thought it was going to be, but Oumuamua was different. So we've only got a sample of two, but Oumuamua was the odd one out. Sounds a bit strange. Yes. So um, back then in 2019, uh, Stu did a story about this. I believe it was 2019, uh, about this weird object. And he told us about some astronomers from Harvard University who'd written a paper that suggested, as Stu just said then, that it could have been an alien spaceship. Do you remember any details about this type of spaceship they thought it was, Stu? Uh, look, not really. It was so long ago and there was not a lot of supporting evidence. So I haven't spent a lot of time thinking about it, to be honest. That's fine. They, um, yeah, so they, Avi Loeb and his colleague had, had, um, said that they thought it was some sort of solar sail. And a solar sail is a, um, hypothetical spacecraft that is propelled by light pressure from the sun or by a powerful laser. Um, it could be. This is a theoretical something. Yeah, um, it just so happened that Avi Loeb had been working on a project funded by a billionaire to create tiny solar cell spacecraft and send them to another star. <laughs> so he was—he already had solar cells on the mind, and he saw something else and goes, oh, that must be what I'm working on. Oh, don't you hate it when that happens? You know, you work on something, then you see it everywhere. Yeah, that's right, that's right. Also, also that, you know, like if you have, if all you have is a solar sail, then everything looks like... No, that's right. Different analogy. So needless to say, this theory did not go down well with other astronomers. And the scientific community didn't gain much traction in the scientific community. There is this... There's a couple of principles that come to mind here. One is the principle that extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. Mm -hmm. And I think alien spacecraft is one of those extraordinary claims. Um, the other is a principle that a lot of astronomers run by, which is, it's never aliens. <laughs> I like that one. I like it that is. One. It's, it's true, because like, we have seen a lot of weird things in the, in, in the universe in the past. The universe is a very big and strange place. There's been a lot of strange things seen. Yeah. And... I mean, of course, you also only have you know, an N equals one here, right? Like, it's yeah. the only one you've ever seen. Yeah. So, assuming that it's an alien first up is, I don't know, a bit presumptuous, maybe? Yeah, it's also, if it's something that you don't know what it is, I mean, yeah, you can say, oh, it's an alien spacecraft and that, and then don't need to think any further about it. Um, I mean, obviously you would if you thought it was an alien spacecraft, but the natural explanations can tell us a little bit about the universe. Now, one of the best examples of this, um, back in 1967, uh, there was detected these um, pulse radio signals coming from outer space. 
and no one knew what they were. They actually gave the the first one they found, they gave it the acronym LGM1, which stood for Little Green Men. <laughs> because, you know, it was a pulse radio signal. It could be aliens. Um, turns out it was a neutron star spinning, that giving out a, a beam of radio waves from its pole. And these things we call pulsars, they're all over the, all over mm. the universe. And they tell us a lot about about the cosmos so yeah if we had just said oh it's aliens sending a pulse signal then we would not have learned as much about about stars in the universe anyway so yes for these principles um astronomers have not really accepted this idea so instead avi Loeb has appealed to public opinion he has written written a book with a very confident title extraterrestrial the first sign of intelligent life beyond earth um, and he's recently been doing a bit of a publicity round explaining that the reason that the scientists have rejected this hypothesis is not because of his lack of evidence, but because they're prejudiced against the idea of alien life. And in fact, they all want to feel like they're the smartest people in the universe. So they don't like the idea of there being anyone smarter out there. I'm paraphrasing, but that's basically what he said. I listened to a few interviews with him. That's essentially what he's saying. Now, this is kind of, these are weird, you know, they're kind of bold claims. I mean, for starters, most scientists you'll speak to will agree that there's likely to be life elsewhere in the universe. I don't know of anyone who's convinced that there cannot be life elsewhere in the universe. So, yeah, I don't know why he says that all the scientists are hostile to that argument. He does argue that there should be more funding to search for extraterrestrial life, which is, um, you know, is a, that's a debated topic, I suppose, but it still has many people who support that idea, that they want more funding for searching for extraterrestrial life. Again, though, I'm not sure why he thinks he's a lone voice here mm. on this particular topic. And this has led to some really odd interactions. There was a Zoom lecture he gave, like a public lecture he gave over Zoom, and there was a and a session afterwards. And he, he argued these points by talking over an astronomer called Jill Tata. She might sound familiar when I say that she is one of the inspirations for Jodie Foster's character in the movie Contact. Oh, yes. Love that movie. Love Carson Yeah, so Ginsburg. she has been working on SETI, the Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence, for over 40 years. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of an odd person to pick a fight with saying, you're just not taking extraterrestrial life seriously. <laughs> <laughs> she was very polite about it. Uh, if that wasn't enough, this is more uh, closer to home thing. So his, um, his approach obviously is a bit different to someone like Jill Tardis. He's not listening for radio signals. Instead, what he wants to do is to start a search for other alien artifacts. And he believes that in doing this, he has invented what he calls the field of space archaeology, which is something that friend of Lost in Science, Australia's own Alice Gorman, would probably disagree with, yeah. I imagine, being a famous space archaeologist. So he's essentially thinking he is inventing everything, I suppose. <laughs> um, yeah. I do, I do sometimes think when someone thinks they've invented something new, they just haven't done their lit review properly to begin with. Google search. Yeah, or Google. Yeah. I was going to say the same thing. Yeah. Doesn't now, take much. Okay, so a lot of this does seem to come from his conviction that there isn't a natural explanation for a muamua. Uh, so, and he kind of talks about this in his in when his interviews and in his book, how he reckons that there is no better explanation than the fact that it is happens to be the very technology that he's been working on. But there has been other works. There's been a lot of other people studying this, not just himself. And there is a very good candidate explanation that has been put forward in a couple of recent papers by Alan Jackson and Stephen Desch, published in the Journal of Geophysical Research, colon, Planets. Sort of like a subtitle, you know, like Batman v Superman, Dawn of Justice. Anyway, so Jackson and Desch, they suggested the behaviour and properties of Oumuamua perfectly match it being a sliver of nitrogen ice 
So nitrogen, of course, is a gas on Earth. It's got the um, chemical formula N2. But, you know, way out in space, it's cold enough that nitrogen can freeze and you can get frozen nitrogen out there. In fact, a planet like Pluto, sorry, a dwarf planet like Pluto, or in fact, Neptune's moon Triton, has nitrogen ice on its surface. So what these, in these two papers, what these astronomers have done is they've calculated, first of all, that the properties of Muamua match this kind of chunk of nitrogen ice, but they've also put forward a theory for where it came from, which is that it may have broken off a planet like an exoplanet, like Pluto, um, in another star system about half a billion years ago. So Pluto, not being a regular planet, it's one of many objects, such objects that live in the Kuiper belt, out sort of in the outer mm-hmm. regions of our solar system. Uh, there's a lot of these things floating around. They're a long way from the sun, so they're easily disturbed. Their orbits are easily disturbed by you know a passing star or a passing planet or some other thing going on, and they can collide, and all kinds of things can go wrong. So their theory is that there was a collision between some of these objects out in another star's Kuiper belt, and that a chunk of nitrogen ice broke off from one of these collisions, and it has been wandering the galaxy for 500 million years ever since. Right. Along the way, it will have been bombarded by cosmic rays, which will have caused it to erode slightly. So, now, the, this, the theory of being nitrogen ice is that when it gets hit by the sun's um, radiation, that will lead to this outgassing, give it that rocket effect. And so that's what's given this acceleration in our solar system. But between the stars, there still is some radiation. You would expect some sort of erosion of this ice. And in fact, that's what they say has happened. And this explains its shape. So they basically say it's just like a, um, a bar of soap. Mm. Like starts off a nice big chunky yeah. bar. But as you use it over and over time, it turns into a very thin sliver. <laughs> that's, that's the theory, essentially. It's the soap. Theory. It's the soap bar theory. Yeah, the soap bar theory. Time to get a new bar of soap. Yeah. So their calculations seem pretty convincing, and many astronomers seem perfectly satisfied with this explanation. I've read some of Loeb's current commentary on this recent work. Um, he's a bit vague about what he thought of it. He raised some objections that were already addressed in the paper published by Jackson and Desch, so I'm not sure his objections are very strong. Um, he also brought up some of his own recent work on outer solar system objects to say he knows who he's talking about, and he repeated that he still believes it's worth searching for alien artifacts. I don't know, maybe it is. Like, if we if we did actually genuinely think that Oumuamua was artificial, then that does give us a good argument for looking for other artifacts. Um, if we don't think it's artificial, then I think you have to guess that anything like that would be fairly rare and probably not productive to look for. But on the other hand, it was a very odd object. You know, this chunk of, this sliver of nitrogen ice itself is a very odd object and the fact that it just happened to come through our solar system and get seen by us means that there could be other ones of those out there and it would be really nice I guess to get a better look at it if another one happened to wander by our solar neighbourhood. all we have time for on another episode of Lost in Science. Thanks for staying with us. Lost in Science is recorded in the studios of 3CR on the lands of the Kulin Nation and broadcasts across Australia on the Community Radio Network with the kind support of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. If you'd like to get in touch with us, we'd love to hear from you. You can find us at lostinsight.gmail.com 
on Twitter, we are Lost in Science 1, or on Facebook, we are Lost in Science on 3CR. Or just tune in again next week when Claire, Chris, and Stu get lost in Thanks for listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.